Kia ora. You're listening to season 2.5 of PhD Unpacked, which is centered on love. I'm John Harvey Kasavi, and I'll be your host for this Coalesce Produced mini-series. I love love, but recently I've realized that we don't give a whole lot of weight to conversations about romantic love. So I've gone and interviewed three academics who study love to tell me why it's important and why we should be having more critical conversations about it. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Rachel Lowe about emotional regulation and how partners who feel loved can buffer the destructive behaviors of partners who don't feel loved. What does that mean? You're just gonna have to listen to the episode and find out. Now, I'm not gonna butcher Rachel's introduction, so I'm gonna go ahead and let her tell us a bit more about herself. If you could introduce yourself, Rachel, and just tell us a bit about who you are, um, what your academic history is, and what your research focuses are, that'd be great. Cool. Um, kia ora, everyone. Kia ora, John Habi. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. I guess my academic journey started from when I was, well, really young. I knew that when I was 12, I wanted to be a relationship counselor. It didn't really pan out that way, but I knew I wanted to do something with relationships. Um, when I was in primary school, which seems a little bit young, um, I was the friend that always bugged people about, who do you like? Who do you like? Oh, do you want to like tell them? <laughs> um, so I was always really interested in relationships. And when I first entered university, typical um, Asian family, they wanted me to go into med, but I always knew I wanted to do psychology. So that's what I ended up doing. And in my second year of undergraduate uh, social psychology course, Nicola was teaching on relationships. And I just remember like, this is amazing. And I loved it, love, love at first sight. And so I completed my bachelor's in, at the University of Auckland. And for my postgraduate, I did a special degree um, in applied behavior analysis. So it was kind of a switch um, because I was also really interested in helping children and families. Mm. So I was a behavior therapist working with children with autism. And then again, I switched gears in my master's where I looked at um, how really young infants observe third-party interactions. And I'm not going to lie, after working in a developmental lab for five years, I got really um, sick of kids. <laughs> it's so challenging working with infants as young as six months old. Is it quite like energy draining? Very. And it made me a little bit scared to be a parent because I'm like, I can't deal with this. <laughs> But anyways, and then so I decided to, okay, maybe I will try to go back to a border. So I moved away from developmental psychology, but I still wanted to be in the realm of family, you know, family psychology. And so I approached Nicola to see if she would be my supervisor for my PhD. I wanted to look at how couples relationship issues, so parents' conflict and problems might spill over to their kids. Uh, so we know from prior research that when your parents are unhappy, um, it can have detrimental effects on their own parenting and their relationship with their child. So we just wanted to expand on that um, area of research. And that's what your PhD was in? And that's what my PhD was in. In 2020, I got a job as a lecturer in AUT um, and then lockdown hit. So that was basically that put a pause on all research because well couldn't get anyone mm. into the lab uh, but we did some really interesting research on how couples and families cope during lockdown yeah. so this was a larger project um, with 
which Nicola led, and I was uh, I was one of the I guess collaborators on the projects. Uh, and then last year, um, fittingly on Valentine's Day, I started my job at Victoria University, and now I'm a lecturer in social psychology there. Oh, and how is it? How's it heading out at Vic in the psych department? I love it. We have the best people, not to brag, but everyone does really cool research. Our students are amazing. I feel that every everyone in the department really loves what they do and we love teaching our students. Um, and there's some really cool research coming out of everyone's lab. Like uh, there's a virtual reality lab looking at disgust and awe. So different kinds of emotions, how and how we can test that using a virtual reality. When you said virtual reality, the first thing that came into my mind is like um, how more and more people are having like relationships in like the AI virtual reality world. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how that will manifest with years to come. Um, but with your, with what you were lecturing about, I was going through the profile um, and it said that you just finished teaching a class on the science of intimate relations. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious. So that was a 400 level paper. Yes. So it's students that have already been doing psych for a while. What was kind of the most surprising thing that students learned in that course that they were the most, you know, taken aback by? Oh, that's a great question. Actually, I think this surprises most people. Um, but Matt came and gave a guest lecture uh, and he talked about how some romantic behaviors are actually sexist and so they actually change people's perceptions of but if someone opens the door for me that's just kind right so it's kind if let's say men open the door opens a door for everybody yeah um but if they only open doors for women that's that's sexist yeah. i mean it's romantic but yeah. it's actually a sexist form of behavior and both of those like you can do something that is romantic and sexist and they don't cancel each other out? Like, they, a behavior could be both? Yes. Okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. Is, is chivalry as a concept, I mean, I know different people have different opinions about it, but behaviors that are considered chivalrous, with a basic example being like opening the door, is that inherently sexist and romantic? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to comment to the answer because it's not my area of expertise. Yeah. Um, but for example, if you go on a date and if it's if you're a heterosexual couple, yeah. Um, typically, I don't know if it's still the case because you know I'm a little bit older now. Um, but men usually pay right. for the date. Yeah. And so that's actually a sexist behavior. I, okay, so I listen to so many, like, podcasts and consume so much, um, like, romance and relationship content, and I feel like this, like, the paying on the date thing is the one thing that I have no idea how I feel about, because I see so many arguments for, like, all sides of the debate of, like, no, like, people should go, you know, that they should go Dutch, they should split the bill, um, other people have the opinion of, like, whoever asks for the other person's time should inherently... You know, so that particularly if it's like a first date and I guess, I don't know if statistically more men in heterosexual couples like ask a woman out on in the first instance. So like they should pay because you're asking for my company. Um, <laughs> and then I also, I also feel like so much of it like plays into our 
like culturally, and when I say culture, I mean like New Zealand's culture of how we think about money and how we think about how that plays into relationships. And I feel like a lot of, yeah, I think from what I've observed in like the States and the UK, there's more of that one person will pay sort of thing and that person might be the man. I feel like in New Zealand, it's very common to like split the bill. I know so many, I literally have a friend who maybe like a month or two ago called me up and he was like, I went on this date and I had to pay for the bill and I don't know how I feel about it. Interesting. <laughs> like I just, she expected me to pay and I feel like that's strange because they were both like, they're both students. And so he's like, you know, we're not like financially well off. Oh no, I actually think she was working full time and he was a student. And so he was like, you know, we should have at least split the bill. And he was like quite offended that he had to <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. So, because I've spoken to a lot of females, mm. and they feel now there there's more and more people saying they're not sure how to feel about it, because you know New Zealand is quite an egalitarian country. But you know, I can pay. I can perf like you know, I can pay for myself. I don't need you to pay for me. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to to hear a male perspective as well. Very interesting. And then yeah, like we're very egalitarian, and then also I guess like. In my personal experience, like, I feel like when someone pays for me and I don't know them very well, it feels like I then owe them something. Mm. And, like, that doesn't have to be, like, a physical something, but, like, at least, like, maybe I owe them another day because now they've paid for, like, this meal or whatever. Whereas if we're going, if we're paying for our own stuff, it's like, well, I don't owe you anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Ah. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't I don't know if I'll either know, like, a clear-cut. No. Yeah. But I think that was definitely something that my students grappled with the most like oh but and then it, my students told me after like I can't I don't perceive just opening doors the same way anymore yeah <laughs> oh you're like the world will never be the same <laughs> yeah yeah I think you touched on it before but one of your main areas of research is emotional regulation can you explain a bit about what that actually means mm -hmm. I think in simpler terms it's looking at how people manage emotions so we experience various challenging situations in our daily lives, frustrations at work, um, frustrations in our relationship. Um, when we lose a pet, we feel intense sadness. Um, parent, when we parent our child, our children, that can also bring up lots of anger and frustration. Um, so my work looks at how people manage mostly negative emotions in different kinds of situations. So my PhD study examined how people manage negative emotions when they're faced with challenges during goal pursuit. And we actually followed students for our first study. Students completed daily diary studies um, over a course of a semester. And we asked them at the beginning to write down a goal that was significant, important to them to achieve over the course of the semester. As you can imagine, lots of students wrote down getting good grades. Uh, some of them were, in, you know, increasing fitness or spending more time with family and friends. So all of these are really important personal goals that people want to achieve. So we've contacted them throughout, but also at the end of the semester to track whether they actually achieved their mm -hmm. goals and if they were successful. And what we found was people who said they suppressed their emotions more. So when they try to, I guess, put a lid on their negative emotions and they hid it from their partners or friends, they were actually less likely to be successful with their goal over time. 
and they were also they felt less close and intimate to their relationship partner in terms of support received and they also experienced greater depressive symptoms so they felt worse about their goal over time i i don't think i've ever thought about being able to openly process emotions as a way of like getting my shit done like being able to you know like move <laughs> forward in life but that that does make sense that if you're holding yourself like you said like putting a lid on things and holding yourself back emotionally then is it that like you're not therefore able to that sounds cheesy but like live a fuller life and you inhibit yourself from going and getting what you want i think the research suggests that when you're suppressing your emotions it takes a lot of cognitive effort. Mm. So imagine that you're interacting with your partner and you're telling them about how frustrated and how sad about or worried about your goal um, that you're not achieving or you, you're really worried about this test and you're having um, difficulty studying. And during this interaction, you're trying not to express your emotions. There's a lot of energy in terms of um, attention and resources that goes into suppressing your emotions. So when you do this, it interrupts the interaction because your partner now doesn't know how you're actually feeling because you're not showing your authentic self, which also means they don't know how to support you. Mm. And in terms of with the goal directly, this inhibition or the cognitive effort that it requires to suppress your emotions mean that you have less resources to actually direct towards your goal. Yeah. Because you're so worried and you're trying to suppress your worry. And you're at the same time, you're also trying to study. So you just have less resources and attention to direct the things that has to be done. People also report a feeling less competent. So the more they suppress their emotions, the less confident they felt about achieving their goal. So I guess that I feel like that goes against what most people would probably assume to be true, where say you're feeling a negative emotion, whether that's in a relationship or just in general. I guess the reason that a lot of people suppress it is because it feels easier to do that than to actually process and feel your emotions. But the research so shows that it takes more energy to put a lid on those things mm-hmm. than it right. to actually feel them. Yeah. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting. And it's interesting, right? Because we see all those posters that say, keep calm and carry on. Oh. But actually not dealing with your emotions is actually more damaging than what, you know, than people think. So we actually contrasted this with another type of emotion regulation strategy um, called cognitive reappraisal. Okay. So cognitive reappraisal is when you try to Um, reframe the situation in the positive light. Mm. So if you just take a step back and think, actually, you know, I've kept up with my studies during the semester. I have done well with practice tests. So I think I'll be okay. Yeah. So reframing how you think about the situation or your ability to cope can actually be helpful. Yeah. So recontextualizing it and yeah, that, that feels like a healthier way instead of, I guess, minimizing your issues being able to reframe them and kind of have like that bigger picture yeah um so when you were saying that you've done a lot of studies with infants and you know young children 
What does emotional regulation look like in kids versus adults? That's a great question. Depends what age range you're looking at. Okay. So if you're looking at infants, because they're so little, they don't actually have much practice with their emotions and definitely less practice with what they do with their emotions. So a lot of um, younger infants and toddlers, they actually look to others for comfort. And it's similar to what adults do as well. So when you're sad or angry, some people like to turn to friends, family, uh, partners. Um, So with young children, often the most common thing we see is them turning to their parent or a grandparent, even a sibling for comfort. Mm. Um, Or they might tug on their parents' dress and say like, please help me, I can't do this. Or they might cry. Um, or wine, um, and that's to elicit support and comfort. Whereas if we look at four to five-year-olds, and as they get older, they become more independent. So they've learned, I, you know, I can be, I can manage my own negative emotions. So some kids might decide to go into their room if their parents have, you know, initiated time out, and this is for them to kind of self-soothe. Yeah. We also see kids suppressing their emotions as well. There's a really cool study that started, I don't know, in like 1990s um, by a researcher called Sarni, and it was called a disappointing gift task. So in this research, they asked children, hey, um, you know, look at all these fun toys. You, you're going to get one of these prizes after the study. Which one would you like? And then they, the researcher actually picked a broken toy to put yeah. into a toy box for them at the end. And so after they completed a task, they brought the broken toy in and say, great, you know, thank you so much. Here's your toy. And they found that as young as three years old, children know how to pretend yeah. and to hide how they're feeling. Yeah. So, and this gets bitter as they grow up. So they get bitter at hiding their negative emotions. That reminds me of, um, have you seen the video of the little kid who gets like an avocado for Christmas? No. <laughs> oh, it's such a, it's such a goodie that his parents wrap up this avocado and he opens it and it's like the sweetest thing. And he's like, an avocado? Thanks. And it's like, I'm so happy about it. It's the cutest thing. That is so cute. That situation really did like avocados. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it was, yeah, it was kind That's of- adorable. So then what does emotional regulation look like in romantic relationships? Mm. So in one of our studies, we invited couples to come into the lab. And this is actually quite a standard procedure um, across the world used to study uh, romantic relationships. So we invited couples into the lab and we set up some cameras to record Mm -hmm. their interactions. And we asked couples to list down their top three significant issues in their relationship. And then we picked one. And we say, okay, so your partner has listed this this issue for you to discuss. Try to discuss this as, as you normally would. And then we left the room and we hit record and then we just wanted to see how they interact. Um, afterwards, we code for their behaviors, like how they communicate. And for me, what I'm particularly interested in is how they regulate or express their emotions. So... Um, you'd be surprised at how quickly couples forget that the cameras are there. So we do actually get quite a variation of, of behaviors and how people express emotions. So what we coded for was emotional suppression. 
So these were signs that people were trying to hold in their emotions, trying to bite their tongue or just not express how they feel. And so some of these behavioral indicators were things like crossing their arms and just like sitting back. So yeah. you got a sense that they were trying to pull back from the interaction. And sometimes they like actually bit their lip. The typical one, so sometimes when people feel like crying, they look up. Yes, just the gravity, just yeah. forcing the tears back. Yeah, forcing the tears back, swallowing. Mm-hmm. So those it's quite clear once you look out for the behaviors. We also looked at whether people tended to ruminate it or they kept circling the problem instead of focusing on finding a solution. So rumination in terms of thinking is when your negative emotions or thoughts are persevering. It just keeps going around in your head and you can't get rid of it. Yeah. It manifests similarly in interactions. So people can say things like, oh, you know, we've we've gone through this problem so many times. You never like fix it or... I've told you so many times not to do this, that this hurts me. Right. And then the last one is similar to cognitive reappraisal. It's a more positive strategy where people are trying to reassure their partner and focus more on the positive aspects of their relationship, saying, oh, you know, this is this is something that we've we've overcome before. I'm sure we can do it again this time. So we coded for those behaviors by watching those videos. And then we also asked them straight after the interaction to report themselves, how much did they try to suppress their emotions during the interaction? How much did they ruminate about the problem um, and how much they try to reframe the situation? And are people self-aware enough to give like a good self-assessment? We don't really know how to tap into that. Mm. So this is their own perception, right? And you know yourself best. What we did find though, is when people who said and were observed to be suppressing their emotions more reported that, oh, yeah, you know, we didn't really resolve our problems. And that was the same for rumination. Um, but calling the free appraisal was better. So if you, if you try to reframe the situation in a positive light, then you, it led to better outcomes for you and your partner. Could you give me like an example of like a helpful thing that someone can say? Some people focus on the relationship, like the strength of the relationship, or they communicate love and care. Um, so they may say something like, you're always so good at this though. We've overcome this before. Um, our relationship is strong. I know we'll get through this. Mm. If it's something to do with the problem is they can sometimes minimize it, but not in the same sense of suppression. So they might say something like, it's okay. Like It's not actually such a big deal. I think if we do X, Y, Z, then I think we'll be okay. Yeah. So trying to lift the situation a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of focus on problem solving. So instead of focusing on the problem itself, they quickly switch to actual solutions. Yeah. And does that still provide the space to actually discuss the problem? Because I feel like I can also see the alternate like the opposite where it's like some people are so solution focused that you never actually discuss what was wrong in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's a fine balance. You need to make your partner feel cared for and that you understand where they're coming from Mm -hmm. and that their issue is a valid issue before you move on to actually find solutions. Yeah. 
So when you talk about emotional regulation as a child and as an infant, um, and then how that kind of changes when people grow up, how does the way that you've learned to regulate emotions earlier in your life then impact your romantic relationship? That's a great question. So the way we regulate our emotions is actually actually stems from our interactions with our caregivers. So depending on how we feel as infants, although it's not very conscious, but it depends on whether we feel that we can turn to our caregivers in times of need. So when we feel distressed or emotional, as young infants, like I said before, we often turn to our close others, like our parents, because we don't know how to self-soothe yet. And so if you have a parent who can serve as a secure base or a safe haven, like a safe place where you can return to, um, so a parent who would respond respond with warmth and kindness and love, you're going to learn that you can turn to others. And eventually, this gives you the space and also the confidence to learn how to deal with negative emotions yourself. But if you have a parent who minimizes it, so imagine that you're really upset about a toy that you've broken and your parent either gets angry at you saying, you know, if they say, oh, stop crying, it's just a toy. Or if they say, like, oh, it's not a big deal. And so if someone dismisses your emotions, you eventually learn that you can't turn to others for support and you have to do it by yourself. Yeah. And that's quite different from the one I said before, where you learn to deal with it by yourself and knowing that you can still turn to others. Yeah. This one, you learn to, this is usually where we learn to suppress our emotions. So we're like, okay, emotions are bad. Emotions disrupt relationships. So I'm going to try to just not feel them. We learn a lot about the value of our emotions or whether they're valid from our early experiences. Yeah. The other pattern that we see that parents do when their infants or children are sad is they aren't always available. So sometimes they are, um, sometimes they're not. And this can make children feel quite insecure. And they're worried that their parents might abandon them um, and not come back or be there for them if they're if they show too much sadness. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that instability. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Instability. So what this is what we call attachment styles, but mm. that was the there was a barely scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah. But your attachment styles when you're an infant predicts your emotion regulation strategies okay. in interactions with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. I have some 10 quick rapid fire okay. so no question. And these are questions that I'll, I've asked the previous two guests and I'm going to ask you as well. Okay. Um, and we also went out on the street, on Keeper Street, and asked people what they thought. There are 10 questions. Answer with either yes or no. Rachel, your first question is, do you believe in love at first sight? Yes. Is it okay to date your friend's ex-partner? No. Valentine's Day? Great, but but also marketing ploy. <laughs> Blind dates. Fun. Yes. Okay. Marriage proposals in public. No. <laughs> Horrifying. Um, going to bed angry at your partner. Sometimes. Uh, double date? Yes. 
Can you be in love with more than one person at once? Yes. Breaking up with someone not in person? No. And lastly, can you ever move out of the friend zone? Yes. You said that you don't believe in love at first sight, or you do? I do. Can you explain that? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Just a little bit. I don't know how scientific this answer is because I grew up, I just love everything to do with love. Yeah. And so I grew up watching a lot of Disney and rom-coms. So it might just be something that I was socialized to believe. Yeah. Um, And maybe not immediate love at first sight, but maybe within five minutes of talking to someone. Wow. I think you know if that's that might be the the person do you believe in the person oh god (laughs) the one yeah ah i used to okay i used to believe that there's like one One person one person made for you but then the more i yeah study relationships and the more you learn about what makes someone you know what can predict attraction yeah you notice a lot of factors going into it yeah for example one of the predictors that might shape that might determine whether you like someone so not just romantically but friends like friendships is proximity so how physically close you're with that person can determine how much you're attracted to that person like on um on dating apps when you can set the radius like, I was always baffled when I'd look at other people's Tinders, particularly people who were students. And, like, a lot of students tend to, in Wellington, will only, like, really be in the central city and won't really veer too far. And I would be baffled when I'd look at their radius and it would be, like, 50 kilometres. And I'm like, are you going to, like, travel, like, <laughs> further than Upper Hutt to go see someone? Because, like, it's so amazing. But, yeah, to me, proximity is so important. Like, how accessible are you to me? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A study that I wanted to specifically ask you about was um, one you did where you looked at destructive behaviors in relationships and you were looking at whether if there are there are two people in a relationship, if one person feels loved, um, that they can buffer the destructive behaviors of the person that feels unloved. So... There's so much to unpack, but um, the starters, could you tell me the motivation behind the study and a bit about, you know, what you found? Yeah, so love is a big core need of being in a relationship someone. One of the reasons that people break up, some people say, oh, you know, I fell out of love. Yeah. Or I didn't feel like I was loved anymore. So it's a it's a big core component, um, but up to that point in in the literature, we didn't have a good definition of what love is. Uh, so it was an attempt to define what love is, and also we wanted to look at love in the context of with actual couple interactions. There's a lot of ways to to research couples, so. You don't actually have to get couples into the lab, right? You can actually ask individuals how they feel about their relationship by using, you know, self-reports. You don't even have to observe them. But we thought it was really important to capture the relational aspect because love exists 
in relationships. So if you don't look at both parties, um, well, in this specific study, it was just um, heterosexual couples in the like two-person relationship, then you can't really fully understand how, how love functions or what the dynamics are. And then what was the, what was the overall findings with that? So did you start off with this hypothesis or is that kind of what you ended up finding? So one of the things we wanted to find out is, do you require both people to feel love to get rid of destructive behaviors? Or is it enough for one person to feel loved to buffer against the negative destructive behaviors we might see that arises during conflict. Based on prior research, there were two kind of predictions or two ways that the results could go. One was called the strong link hypothesis. And the strong link hypothesis is when you only require one partner to feel loved to kind of buffer the destructive behaviors that might occur during conflict. The other way that the results could have panned out was a, so we had a weak link hypothesis, and that's when it only takes one person to ruin the situation, yeah. I guess. Like your team is only as strong as this, your weakest link. Yeah. Kind of theory. Yeah. Right. Well put. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you talk about destructive behaviors, can you give me some examples? Uh, this paper included five observational studies with over 800 couples. Wow. Um, over 2,000 interactions were recorded. When we talk about destructive behaviors, again, when we look at video recordings of couple interactions, we see things like criticism. So putting down your partner or expressing anger or displaying hostility um, and sometimes withdrawing from your partner. Yeah. So during the interaction, some people might take out their phones or they might turn away from their partner or withdraw. So their partner might be expressing really important things, but they're just turning inwards. They might be looking away, just showing um, a lack of interest. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that scenario, like if, if say the scenario was that person A is, is the person feeling loved and person B is feeling unloved and person A like um, starts an interaction with person B and person B displays some kind of um, destructive behavior, is is what the study saying that if person A feels loved, they can buffer it in the sense of like it doesn't impact their relationship as much or they can see past that or they can resolve that themselves? So I might change how we, the orientation okay. to fit better yeah. with the study. So if a person feels unloved, what we saw, what we found in these interactions is they displayed more destructive behaviors. So if I'm feeling unloved and we have conflict, yeah. I'm going to be showing more hostility, frustration, criticisms towards my partner. If my partners feel loved, this actually um, buffered against the effects of destructive behaviors. And we also tried to test whether this was explained by more loving behaviors displayed by the partner who feels loved. Yeah. So one possibility, so why this could, why this might happen is because the partner who feels loved can not get 
pulled into the negativity, right? Yeah. So they can do that and by fight someone, and they don't bite. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then so the the partner who feels loved can display like loving behaviors using physical touch or saying um, displaying intimacy. Um, but that wasn't what we found. So that's not the explanation here. Okay. So how how does someone buffer, like in that in your study? We don't know because we were hypothesizing that it was loving behaviors, right? Yeah. That they weren't responding to negativity with negativity. Yeah. But we but it's not actually the case. So what did you find? There was support for the strong link hypothesis, yes. right? So it only takes one person who feels loved. Yeah. Who can kind of like save the situation. Yeah. Um, but we don't know why that is. Okay. So it might be that it's not general loving behaviors, um, but maybe we weren't capturing the nuances. So not everyone buffers their partner by showing intimacy or physical touch. Yeah. People need different things yeah. from their partners. So some people might need space. Yeah. So if you're responding to your to someone who actually needs space during conflict by hugging them or giving them lots of you know physical touch that might not work yeah on the other hand some people want like want intimacy they want physical touch but that's something that wasn't you know that we couldn't untangle in this study yeah out of curiosity how willing are people to be their like unabridged authentic selves when they're being observed in a study yeah. Um, so we ask people that question. So how similar was the interaction to your normal interactions? Yeah. And people generally say that it is quite similar. Yeah. Okay. And from a researcher's perspective, we find that couples easily forget that the cameras are even there. Because you're not in the room. Because we're not in the room. It's just them. That is so, so interesting. In the study, you defined... Feeling loved as feeling loved, um, feeling cared for, accepted, valued, and understood. Yes. Those were kind of the I think, five ways that someone can feel loved or the things that go into feeling loved. How do you describe what feeling unloved is? Oh, is it just like the, the inherent absence of those things? Is it like feeling the absence of positivity or like actively something negative is happening? In this study in particular, we looked at the absence of it. Okay. So low levels of demonstrations that your partner loves you and cares for you. They don't show you that they that you're valued um, as opposed to the presence of negative yeah. behaviors. Is it peculiar in a relationship where... Because I can, like, on one hand, I can completely understand how two people can be in a relationship. One person feels loved, one person doesn't. But it kind of, like, also feels odd that someone could be receiving, like, receiving the the care and, and all of the good stuff from the other person, but then not be able to give it back. Hmm. Like, it kind of, I don't know, it just, it seems like either both of you give it. Or you don't. Like, it, it feels like a very selfish way to exist. But then in reality, I can also understand that that can 
potentially even go just like unnoticed that you don't realize that you're not providing those things. I think especially with long-term relationships, you might start taking the person for granted. And so, you know, earlier on, um, when you're first starting to date, people put in so much effort. Like, they think about how they look, how they dress, and they think about different ways they can make their partner happy. And then along the way, you forget yeah, or you stop trying. And then obviously... Sometimes when people have conflict, that also changes how you perceive your partner and you might start displaying less affection, less care. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that goes into why that relationship might exist. Yeah. And so with the findings, how much of it do you think either supports or goes against what we generally believe about relationships? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for that because I'm not sure how much people think about this specific process. Like, I don't know if people think, oh, that's okay. My partner feels loved. He'll, (laughs) like, you know, he'll save the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. But that will be an interesting interesting question to investigate. Um, And also in the research, relationships were uh, described as dyadic. Mm. What does that mean? Dyadic just means, in in the research world, it just means that we're looking at a two-way relationship. Let's say we're talking about dyadic effects. So we don't just want to know how you affect your partner, so the things that you do and how you think affects your partner, but your partner also affects you. Yeah. So there's a two-way relationship, right? Yeah. So whenever we look at a couple interactions, we look at dyadic effects. Yeah. I wanted to end on a a nice, a, a positive, supportive note. Okay. Not that all of this has not been supportive. <laughs> it's been it's been great. Um, but when we spoke a while ago, you were talking about some, I don't know if I can call them strategies or behaviors, um, but some things that people do in relationships that I guess they don't like you said think about in like an academic way. Um, but some things that people do that are like quite positive two things you talked about capitalization and you talked about self-expansion mm-hmm. um for the people at home uh could you explain what capitalization is yeah capitalization is when you share good news with your partner and your partner responds with positivity in an active way so let's say you get a promotion at work and you go home and you say oh my goodness i got this big promotion i'm so happy and your partner goes, oh my goodness, Jen Harvey, that's so great. I'm so happy for you. Let's go out and celebrate. Yeah. And then so you get this kind of, your partner meets your positivity with their positivity. So they're also equally, if not more, happy for you. Okay. You're like capitalizing on the yes. the existing positivity and like bolstering each other up. Yes, exactly. Okay. And capitalization has been shown to not only make the person who got the promotion happy, they also make the partner feel happy and they report feeling more satisfied with their relationship in the short term and in the long term. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really small behavior that people can do, right? Yeah. Because imagine if you come home and you say, babe, I got a promotion. And your partner goes, awesome. Yeah. That feels like like, like a win <laughs> You're like, oh. 
Exactly. And then so it's it's something easy that people can do. Mm-hmm. So if someone shares good news with you, then, you know, be happy. And, yeah. And yeah. Like, do you think it has to come from a place of genuine happiness? Or, like, can you also capitalize? So say if someone, like, if someone comes to me with, like, really exciting news about something that I in the nicest way, like maybe don't potentially care about, <laughs> you know, it's like, like, of like a really niche interest they have and they're like sharing something really exciting. And it's like, cool, like I'm happy for you. But if I'm not genuinely happy, can I still kind of almost like fake it and that still work? Oh, that's a great question. It's, it will be so much easier if the good news was shared by social media or by via messenger because okay. emojis are easy, right? Yeah. And people can express themselves with emojis really easily. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about the other question, but peep, I know people are really good at picking up where people are not authentic. <laughs> so I think yeah. just be genuine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the other thing you spoke about was self-expansion, which I also think is really like simple, but really wholesome. So could you could you explain what self-expansion is? Yeah, it is really wholesome. So it's kind of in the name. Self-expansion is when you try to expand your sense of self. And this often occurs at the start of relationships, but not just at the start. We also see it throughout relationships. But think about when you just meet someone for the first time, they have potentially different interests, um, different preferences from you. So let's say the person you're dating really loves stand-up comedy. Yeah. And you might not have seen stand-up ever, but then they suggest, oh, let's go, you know, for our next date, let's go to stand-up comedy. And so what is happening is that you're self-expanding. You're experiencing different things. You're trying new food or you're you know you might develop a new hobby yeah and vice versa right so your yeah your your partner might also be doing things that you like yeah so again this self-expanding um also fosters relationship closeness yeah so when you're doing things new things together because it's novel and exciting um yeah that increases how close you feel to that person and how happy you feel about your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, because you are expanding yourself, but you can attribute that to being in this relationship. So it like potentially would be something that you wouldn't have tried by yourself that you are like, you can credit this person with like these exciting new like opportunities that you're giving yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes this might not even be a conscious thing. Yeah. So let's say 10 years down the road and people ask you, so what are some of your hobbies? And you're like, oh, I love stand-up comedy. Yeah. And you might not even have thought about where that came from until yeah. someone asks, like, how did you get up into stand-up comedy? And then does it does it get, if you're looking at a long-term relationship, does, does it get more difficult to keep expanding? Because I guess if, like, I mean, I guess people can only have so many hobbies. And if you've, if you, like, met when you were 20 and started, you know, like, being together then and you had, like, three hobbies each, and then if you shared those with each other, then maybe by the time you're 40 and if you have a life taken on <laughs> new stuff, like I guess that like the ability to self-expand maybe decreases over time unless you're constantly with someone who's like reinventing themselves, which is very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends. Yeah. Because I think some people also 
because self-expansion can happen within the relationship, right? Like you're trying something with your partner. Okay. But another new area of research that is growing is looking at how uh, one person's self-expansion, so one person trying out new hobbies, yeah, can affect their relationship. Okay, in positive way. Uh, I think for some for some aspects, mm-hmm. and it also depends. Yeah. So you can imagine if if the person is spending a lot of time self-expanding, yeah. So they're always going mountain climbing by themselves yeah they're always spending time with their friends and neglecting their relationship mm. that is not going to be good positive for them but positive like, for them not in yeah. relationship yeah although like you said i guess maybe once you've gone through that initial phase in your relationship when you're sharing new things like then the thing becomes that like well we can both try something that's foreign to us exactly so the expanding in that way is kind of lower yeah, exactly. And that might also change. So let's say um, the person who is self-expanding by themselves first, eventually they go, hey, Tom, do you want to yeah. come along? Yeah. So that changes throughout the relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have three more wholesome concluding questions <laughs> that I've also been asking everyone. And you can answer these however you would like. Uh, the first question, albeit probably the most difficult, what is love? <laughs> it's so hard to not go back to our definition in the paper. Yeah. I guess on maybe on a personal level, what is love to you? The f- this is going to sound so cliche, but I think the feeling of home, like you can just be completely yourself with this person. No makeup, no... You're not worried that your sadness or anger is going to drive them away. You can be completely vulnerable. You can reveal your darkest thoughts and know that they're not going to abandon you. Yeah. And vice versa. Like, you know that when the other person is having a really bad day, um, that it's not necessarily about you and you know you can take comfort in knowing that you're both committed to this relationship and it's not going to take like one small thing to (laughs) to like ruin it yeah yeah that sense of like security yeah security and just being just being yourself like in like 100 percent just 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 you yeah (laughs) my second question is if you think about like an ideal, happy, healthy relationship. What are three words that you would use to describe that relationship? I don't think necessarily happy and healthy are the same. Okay. And from research, not necessarily from um, relationship research, mm-hmm. but on with research looking at the pursuit of happiness, yeah, that actually has negative outcomes. So the more people try to pursue happiness, the less happier they the less happy they are. And I think the same goes for relationships. So the more people try to like post on Instagram or wherever like manufacturing manufacture like look at how happy I am with my partner or we're doing this or we're trying this new thing. Um there's actually research to show that 
the more people post on social media, it's they're actually less happy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I think a healthy relationship can be captured by these three words: resilience, honesty, and responsive. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Those are three very beautiful words. It was hard. Hard <laughs> question. <laughs> and my last question, Rachel, is um, if the person listening to this has a significant other, has a partner, has someone they like, what, I guess from what you know of like your research, what's like a nice thing that they could do for them or that they could implement in their relationship? It depends on the person. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a one size fits all thing. Yeah. So let's say you've learned that maybe the common assumption is, oh, you know, people love getting flowers. Well, your person might think that flowers are a waste of money. Yeah. And they might think just just cuddling at home, watching something that they want to watch, that is a very um a very obvious signal that they love you and they care for you and you're important to them. Yeah. So um yeah, I would think about what makes your significant other happy. Yay. That is it for this interview and that is it for season two point five. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Rachel. This has been really, really fun. Thank you, Jen Harvey. I had lots of fun as well. That's it from me, that's three for three, and that brings us to the end of our mini-series, All About Love. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and hopefully you've listened to the other two that are also out. Personally, it's been so much fun doing this series. I've learned so much about love from an academic sense. For more from PhD Unpacked, you can look us up on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, wherever it is that you doom scroll your life away. And if you want to see more of me, you can head to Instagram at Goddess by Night.